If only Jesus was king, his peaceful kingdom he'd bring. If only God was love, it would fall from the skies above. In Jesus, we move from only and if to now. My name is Josh, and this is We the Peace. We the Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to mobilizing Christian leaders to bring Jesus-centered peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of Jesus are central to discipleship. We the church are we the peace in a hurting and violent world. In season two, we explore how Christian leaders can develop a Jesus-centered outlook on politics. What does Jesus have to do with politics? How does the kingship of Jesus impact our understanding of modern politics? In what way is the church a political institution? We will define politics, walk through the four Christian views on politics, and then look to the ministry of Jesus for how Christians are to relate to and mobilize politically. Let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome everyone. My name is Josh. This is We the Peace. We are in episode nine of Jesus Centered Politics on an episode I've simply titled Romans 13. In this episode, we will explore what Paul is looking to accomplish biblically and theologically in a passage about governing authorities. If you are unfamiliar in Romans 12, 9 through 21, Paul reinforces Jesus' teaching on non-violent enemy love, and then Paul transitions to Romans 13, 1 through 6, and it's really a flagship passage about how God's people are to relate to and understand governing authorities from a new covenant perspective, so very relevant to uh, this series. I'm going to be interviewing a friend, Andrew Valera, a Pauline scholar, author, Duke PhD candidate. He's right about to wrap up his dissertation and also a hockey player in, in the event that you guys like hockey. Uh, and he's also a co-founder at PAX. And like I mentioned, uh, somebody I get to work with that I'm, I'm stoked to have you on. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Of course. Happy to be here. So I do want to say as we get started, this is going to be more of a theological and biblical conversation compared to some of the interviews we've had prior, and that's important for us because we need to understand the dynamic between Paul and Jesus as we look at the authority of Scripture and and the canon being something beautiful that is an authority in our lives. How does Jesus relate to Paul and something I've been advocating for in this series, which will be a theme over the course of the seasons, is that Jesus is not only our Savior, but our teacher. So the first question is, Andrew is somebody who has spent a ton of time in Paul within your PhD work. How does Jesus impact our reading of Paul's letters? The question about how Jesus impacts um, our reading of Paul's letters is important because of something Paul says in Second Corinthians, we get a glimpse into how Paul reads Scripture, um, and and I think the last thing Paul would want us to do with his letters is to do what he was uh, critiquing at the time of people turning what they were doing to the old what we call the Old Testament, um, and that is turning them into dead letters. 
Now, how, how does that happen? That happens when, according to Paul, you read the scriptures without reference to Jesus. So this is in 2 Corinthians 3, if you want to go look, look this up after the podcast. Um, notice the contrast between um, reading scriptures as a dead letter, apart from Christ, apart from the revelation of Christ, and reading scripture um, as alive and enlivened by the spirit of the resurrected Christ. And so when we read Paul's letters on analogy, then I think he would be like, Please do not read these as dead letters. Read these in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, we know that this is front and center for Paul and other things besides 2 Corinthians 3 that he wrote. Um, he talks about often how um, we're to be conformed to the character of Christ. And so I think um, something that stuck with me is this phrase that if you read Paul first, you're going to get Jesus wrong. Um, and, but if you read Jesus first, this, the, the Gospels, then you'll get Paul right. And I think that's exactly the way Paul would want us to read his, his letters. Don't abstract these from the larger um, narrative and revelation of Jesus Christ that for us are found in, uh, for us Christians are found in uh, Matthew, Mark, um, Luke, and John, that this narrative frame around these stories um, of Jesus and his teachings need to inform how we as Christians are learning to read Paul's letters as part of Christian scripture and as um, helping us determine and think out, think through and work out uh, the shape of the Christian life. How did Jesus shape Paul's political theology? For Paul, I think some basic observations are necessary at this point, which is Jesus's, his, his announcement of the gospel of Jesus's lordship is very much on what we would call like the political register. It's not, you know, the, the separation between um, religious or spiritual and political and earthly. Uh, the lordship of Jesus is something that is higher than um, the the rulers and powers of the world, but it's, it's precisely that point that he is, uh, his lordship, Jesus's lordship, relativizes all other lordships, all of their kingdoms, all their powers. And that's the point. The point of putting Jesus higher is to say that we separate these two things out from one another, the kingdom of Jesus, the, the, the rule of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus from the kingdom of rule from all these other people. It's that for Paul, the announcement of Jesus's lordship is precisely to say that his lordship is over all those other lordships, all those other um, so-called Lord, so-called gods, he says in First uh, Corinthians 8. First point, Jesus's lordship is over and relativizes all the other lordships. The second point would be that, that this Jesus Paul is proclaiming is a self-emptying, self-humbling, um, enemy-loving Lord. That there is a, uh, what Michael Gorman calls a cruciform or cross-shaped, shaped like the cross, shaped like the narrative of the crucifixion, um, a cruciform character to Jesus that Paul thinks ought to shape um, the social and political formation of all Christians, of all followers of, of this Lord, of, of this Christ, that that narrative is determinative for all our relationships in any sphere you want to try to silo off. Paul says, no, this is all under the Lordship of Jesus. There's no private sphere. There's no family sphere. There's no work political, whatever, entertainment. This is all under the lordship of Jesus. And that for Christians, this all needs to be shaped by that story of the cross. So uh, to recap, just to make sure I'm understanding you, which this is so beautiful for me to hear. The first is 
um, Jesus shapes Paul's political theology or political imagination by one, uh, revealing to his readers out of the heart of Paul that Jesus is Lord over all, and that trumps or truncates all other lords, let's not, all other let, kings. Let's not use trumps. <laughs> all other lords, all other kings, all other political rulers, presidents, whatever. And, but second, yes. it brings us into a political narrative or a political story that is cross-shaped in nature, bringing us into the story of God, bringing us into this beautiful Jewish narrative where we then live out like the crucified Messiah. Then we uh, are cruciform, which is a fancy and beautiful way of saying that the way Jesus accomplishes salvation, the way Jesus lived his life is actually an example for Christians today. Are we touching on what you're saying? Yes. And perhaps maybe one more observation on this, but that the story that Paul's telling about crucifixion, that's, that's a political story. Rome, the, Rome doesn't just crucify like spiritual gurus. Crucifixion is something done only for slaves and insurrectionists and specifically like Spartacus uh, rebellion, a, a slave insurrectionist. And uh, so the crucifixion itself is a political execution. And that's the scandal Paul uses in another letter, first Corinthians one, that's the scandal of the cross is that he's at, he's speaking a political message, a, a political revolution that happened in Jesus and his Lordship that somehow happened through a a failed political revolution in the crucifixion of this, of this person. So I think sometimes it's easy for Christians to maybe go too quickly to sacrificial metaphors of Jesus death or something. Um, And they're there sometimes, but not in Philippians. Um, This is a political um, thing. A crucifixion is a political thing. Just that's what it is. That's awesome. Okay. Switching gears and, and diving into Romans 12, 13, uh, listen, you're a Pauline expert. This is what you've spent many, many years developing. So it's awesome for us to understand from your perspective how to best understand Romans 12 and 13. Something very peculiar happens at the end of Romans 12 leading into his talk about the governing authorities. Paul talks about nonviolence in particular. And what reason did Paul have to reinforce Jesus's teaching on nonviolence as he's leading into encouraging Christians to, in some sense, obey governing authorities? Help us understand what's going on there. Go read Romans 12 to 13, like Josh just set up, and and try to uh, ignore the chapter divisions, because these things are just flowing one into the other. You know, Paul didn't write chapter headings in his letters. And... Um, I think right away you'll will notice how Paul is moving in ever increasing concentric circles of how to apply the love command, and uh, so this starts in in chapter twelve with insiders, those you know, those who are within the church, and it expands to strangers, and then it gets straight up into enemies, not just strangers that like may or may not be cool, but actual enemies, people doing you harm. And then all of a sudden he gets into the, the, the governing authorities. So I think that observation, we often fail to notice it because people are accustomed in America and actually apartheid South Africa uh, 
Nazi Germany to plucking Romans 13 out from its context and using it as like a manifesto for advancing the imperial aims and of the host nation, right? So just be aware of that history that is behind Romans 13 uh, when people use it, say, to justify certain policies at the border or whatever. And I think we'll probably get to this later, but this isn't the only message we have as Christians in Scripture about how to relate to the government. So it's it's weird that this is the one that gets lifted up above these other ones. Uh, say, you know, Romans 13, there's others, but go read Revelation 13 for a, you know, a pretty different take on the same Roman government. All right. So what we see happening, though, is Paul working out this love command that's moving from insiders to strangers to enemies to government. And if you're following that pattern, it seems like he's saying these imperial rulers are part of that enemy category that you need to love in a certain way. And that is fundamentally to not join an insurrection. This is where Jesus' teaching on nonviolence comes in because he explicitly says that, right? About your enemies cursing you or doing these things, just love and bless, do not curse. And now when he comes to governing authorities, he's he's saying, hey, you need to pay your taxes. What Paul's talking about there in Romans 13, if anything, is saying, hey, maybe don't revolt. <laughs> um, I mean, you say a lot more than that, but uh, this isn't a way to love your enemy. And as, as much as you may feel um, compelled to join in these insurrection movements, please don't. This is not actually the way of, of, of love. And um, yeah, so ha- when we contextualize it his- historically and in the letter, we see that Paul's moving from how to love people from your close friends that could bug you or in, within the church to strangers to enemies. And within that enemy category, I believe he's placing um, governments. That's really interesting. And one, one thing I've been touching on is that our culture and our own social location, where we are embedded within a society socioeconomically, whether we have been marginalized or we are a person of, of privilege, that shapes the way that we view Romans 13. So it's not surprising that when you're a person that is a part of the elite of a host nation like myself, you read Romans 13 and you go, I live around police officers. I have friends that serve in the military. I come from a military family. Of course, Romans 13 means that the government is good. It's instituted for a good reason and we shouldn't disrupt it. And then what you're saying is those who read this letter in the first century that were in Rome, whether they um, were Gentiles converting or whether they're expressing their Jewish faith by following the Messiah, these are folks that have been tempted, like the Jews constantly were, to revolt violently against Rome. And Paul is helping them understand by even talking about enemy love right before getting into governing authorities, that that is not an option for those who follow the way of Jesus. The way that Paul describes the governing authorities is very interesting in Romans 13 because it seems to be talking about sovereignty and and providence. So I'm going to skip to that question right now. What does Paul mean when he is saying that God sovereignly institutes governing Hmm. authorities and uses them to curb evil? Because that is all that has also been used as a weapon and has been weaponized yeah. against people from the margins. Sovereignty and providence. 
two biblical doctrines that like I don't necessarily have a problem with, depending on how we nuance it. But -hmm. what does Paul mean by that? We get a general picture and the prophets, and I think this is what Paul's picking up on, of uh, Israel's prophetic um, tradition has a theology of, of the outworking of God's sovereignty and justice in the world that uses the injustice of other nations to, in like a grand scheme of things, bring about um, God's uh, justice, God's plan, whatever word we want to put there. And it causes some real issues for for the prophets, specifically Jeremiah, known as a weeping prophet, specifically uh, Habakkuk, short little prophetic book, um, reading like seven minutes, but he's basically wrestling with this notion that God can use a wicked and unjust nation as, and this is what's key, this is what Paul's picking up on, as a servant, as a servant of God to bring some sort of justice, as a as an avenger, as a rod of wrath, is what Isaiah calls Assyria. And so what, what I think is going on here in Romans 13 is Paul's just allu- using that prophetic tradition to say, Rome's n- no angel, right? Well, neither was Assyria, neither was Babylon, and yet the... Israel's pr- prophets were saying God's using them for some sort of good. But crucially, that doesn't excuse them from the evils that they're doing. I- Isaiah says, Assyria is a rod uh, of, of my wrath, but also God's going to bring their injustice back on their head for what they, for what they did. So proclaiming that, that a foreign nation is a minister of God, is a servant of God, is in no way... Uh, for the scripture tradition to say uh, we are sanctifying this nation. Um, in fact, it usually is what's about to lead to their, they're going to be judged next. And this is what Habakkuk's wrestling with. This is what Jeremiah's wrestling with, Isaiah, and all this. God's creative power is such that just like when he created the first time out of chaos and formless and void, Genesis 1, he can create good from evil. It's not taking the evil and saying it's good. It's not saying that's fine or anything like that. It's just saying that nothing we can do, this is Romans 8, nothing we can do can separate us from the love of God. And that love of God is the outworking of his uh, plan of redemption in the world. No amount of evil, we as individuals, we as nations, we as whatever, can undo that. And God, he can't stop it. He can't stop God's love. And God will use that and and make good. He will he will he will use different nations, different people, different whatever as servants, as as agents of wrath, but that doesn't excuse what they do because then they're gonna go ahead just like Habakkuk with Babylon. This is the message that, that God gives Habakkuk is just trust. You'll be preserved through your faithfulness. Just trust that I'm going to work this out. Even though it seems crazy that I'm using Babylon as my minister, as my servant. And so that's what I think Paul's trying to do is, hey, I know you might want to revolt and not join all this stuff and not pay your taxes. Just trust God. Like, And coming from Paul, dude who's been imprisoned a bunch, been treated uh, unjustly by this, by this uh, uh, empire, he's saying, let's just wait. Let's just trust. Let's 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 listen to the prophet. So that's how I think I, I would take his message. I think it's interesting you also reference the prophets 
in relation to the way that God was judging Israel in the Old Testament. And then we think of Romans 13, but we also see Revelation being uh, the result of Roman Empire and what happens. Can you speak a little bit about Romans 13 as it relates to Revelation as a judgment of empire? Whatever's happening in Romans 13, it's not the, the Bible's final word for Christians on, on how we should think about government. And whatever it's saying, it's not saying, let's give a blank check to the ruling authorities. Whatever they do is is uh, identified with God's will, with God's desires. It's not. And so we have the prophetic examples about how these same the same language can be used of these great uh, empires of, of evil and enemies of, of Israel about being a minister uh, of God and all that stuff. What John's doing is just talking about empire qua empire, Gentile imperial movement qua Gentile imperial movement. And as a way of looking at the world and saying, there's always going to be a hegemon, right? The, the rule, the, the big one, but these are all just variations on a theme, John's saying. And knowing that we, we need to we, sometimes we need a revelation to see that because it's not as apparent. It's not just um, perfectly transparent what's going on in the world. So John's saying, well, you know what, let me pull, peel back the curtain, or, or God's saying rather, but through John, let me peel back the curtain. You see that these are actually beasts. One way of threading the Bible from Babel, from G- Genesis 11 all the way to Babylon, same actually uh, letters in, in Hebrew, uh, is, is just it's looking at how do the people of God interact with Babylon. There's always a Babylon. And it's a story of how is God exerting his rule over Babylon? And how are the people of God supposed to be living faithfully while under Babylon's rule at the same time? All the nations are Babylon. They're either the hegemonic Babylon or they're the little, we want to be the next Babylon, like we're working our way up, you know? Uh, and and what, what uh, the Bible as a whole and Revelation specifically tells us is, okay, um, there's all these Babylons. Here's how you live faithfully. Here's how you follow the lamb and, and not get seduced by the beast. As we look at Romans 13, how does this relate to people living in North America? Well, it goes back to that, um, that, that narrative, like you, like you said, or, you know, summarized from what I said is that it's how are the covenant people of God, which another name for that, um, for, for us, in both borrowing from Exodus and First uh, Peter, is a kingdom of priests. How do we, as a kingdom of priests under the lordship of the Lamb, the slain Lamb, live in the midst of rival empires rising and falling? Um, that's the basic question. So when we think about, okay, well, I'm in the United States, we don't necessarily, I mean, I mean, it's a superpower, right? You don't need to say it's number one or number two or Russia or China or whatever, Great Britain. Like, it's just, it's it's near the top, all right? It, um, so what we need to do is, um, I think, step back a bit as Christians and go, oh, wait, we're part of a different, we're part of a whole different kingdom. And we're, we're living in the midst of these as exiles, but we're, this is just um, that, that story for us, for our generation, that story of covenant people of God as kingdom of priests living in the midst of other kingdoms. And what we do then is start assessing, okay, the ju- what the nations or our nation, whatever, calls justice, calls righteousness, 
Well, who's to say they're right? Like, we, we can't let them determine for us what justice and righteousness is. They're not the standards of that. That's revealed, Paul says, in Jesus, in the gospel. This is when the justice of God is revealed, is in this story. So that's got to determine how we are living in the midst of, of this empire when they're unjust. We have the same, I think, calling. Or that's a false unity. This is a Babel-like, homogenous, assimilated um mess that's that's blurring and eviscerating the differences that God calls good from every language, tribe, people, nation, and tongue, and, and the whole the whole bit. So we, we take this story and we look at okay, which ways is our nation uh, that we're that we're living under, what what things can we affirm and what things do we need to challenge as a church? If we could all just do that work of looking at how justice is worked out in scripture in these ways and then agree that whatever the nations say is just we don't necessarily we, we can't agree too quickly that's that's yeah. my point we can't just say like well that's legal or oh that's illegal well that doesn't really that doesn't count for us um it, it may sometimes overlap and that's when we would want to affirm and try to help shape and, and things like that uh the notions of justice out in the world and, and what, what we're seeing. Uh, but ultimately, like Peter says, we need to obey God rather than uh, human authorities in Acts 5, um, verse yeah. 29. So when we, when we see the injustice happening, whether it's passed off as justice or not uh, by, by the world, uh, we need to obey God instead of um, humanity. Your husband, your father, your student, you're, you are 30 other things. What does this look like practically for you and your family to, to work, work this out? I think wrestling with that question, honestly, and in explicit conversation with one another, uh, is step one, one another meeting my immediate with my wife and, and our kids. We, they're, they're nine and seven right now, uh, but bringing them into these conversations and, um, letting them know that it's not always just easy. But one thing that we're trying to to make sure we're doing is not living inconsistent life or something, but like to put it in the way I think Jesus does, um, to not live in blasphemy. We sometimes want to tell ourselves that belief just happens in our head, like what propositions we, we um, think are true, and that has nothing to do with what we actually do, right? So as long as I'm proclaiming this on a podcast in public, whatever, in my writings, my publication, then, oh, that's good. That means I believe the gospel. And, and this is sweet. Like, good. I Nothing more to think about. I believe the right things, right? I'm proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Um, but really settling into, yeah, but how are we living? Um, what is it that we're actually proclaiming with our, with our actions, that, that actually tells what we really believe. So to, to accept or reject a certain public way of life, socio-political, economic way of life, to accept or reject that is actually in Scripture to accept or reject a certain deity. It's God or mammon, or it's Yahweh or Baal, or it's Yahweh revealed in Jesus or the American eagle. And what blasphemy is, what inconsistency is, what being a hypocrite is, is proclaiming or professing um, Yahweh, Jesus, right? That that carries with it a certain socio-political form of life, that cruciform form of life that we talked about. This justice that is 
uh, reconciliation and forgiveness and this love of enemy, this justice that speaks truth to power. Um, t- so to profess that, but then actually live out the socio-political form of life that's the American eagle, that's blasphemy. And so how do I work that out? Man, I got to confess all over the place. That's how I work it out. Step one is, is trying to reassess what am I saying with my actions and my buying patterns and what, where we spend our money and what my time's devoted to. What, does that actually, is that actually proclaiming the sociopolitical form of life of Jesus, of the slain lamb, of Yahweh, um, of of the the body of Christ that's pan-national? Or would anyone else, would an alien or whatever, however you want to think about it, look at me and go, oh, that dude's an American. Well, then there we go, right? That That's really, and so working that out, you can drive yourself nuts. This is why you have to have a good um, community to help you see, because you can't, you can't always get, you. we can kind of self-reflect, but you can't self-reflect perfectly, right? Yeah. Um, I don't even know what the back of my head looks like. I'll never know. And the, the, the image I'm getting back at me on Zoom of my face is just that it's a reflection. It's not, I've never seen my face. I need other people's perspectives, even to know my own body. How much more so than to know my shape of life, right? So part of what how we work this out is not only in explicit conversations of trying to do these match up, what we're professing and our way of life. What does our way of life profess? Are we worshiping the American Eagle? Are we worshiping mammon? What is it? Um, trying to bring those two uh, in c- closer together. Um, and then also, I mean, and I'll, I'll say this by way of pumping this other uh, organization, uh, but Supporting Preemptive Love Coalition. Uh, go look them up. They're doing fantastic, sustainable things for refugees and uh, uh, people who are... Um, victims of uh, of all the wars going on in Iraq, Syria, ISIS, and all that stuff, um, and teaching them uh, trades and skills and things like that. Trying to find, like, when I myself can't be in certain locations, what we learn from from, from Scripture, and especially, like, uh, I mean, since I'm sorry, trying to bring it back to Paul, supposedly a conversation about Paul and politics or something, um, where he gets his churches to supply uh, for, the, for the saints in Jerusalem. Um, your money tethers you to not just, you know, a certain form of life, but to certain people. And so trying to find uh, people like the Preemptive Love Coalition, where they themselves are in these places, I can't be for whatever reason, but I'm going to have fellowship, uh, the koinonia in Greek, with that, not just like thoughts and prayers, uh, and I say that, you know, pejoratively because that's often used not as like, no, I'm praying so that my mind is shaped like God's and aligned with theirs and it's going to work itself out in my financial giving. If you mean that by prayer, then by all means pray. But usually thoughts and prayers means uh, so that I don't actually have to tether my body to theirs in some sort of way. And one of the ways we do that is by giving our money. Supporting the good work of other people, basically, whether that's scholarly work, whether that's on the ground work, whether it's creative work, um, we 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 want to find ways of attuning ourselves to our bodily connections with other people. And I think, especially in the age of COVID, Zoom stuff, uh, realizing that there's always been other ways to unite with others beyond. Uh, 
what we would call like physical touching, but um, money's physical. It 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 puts you in touch with 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 both people and gods, whether they're true or false gods, doesn't matter. You're touching them with how you're using your money. Um, so, yeah. That's awesome. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for this conversation and helping us understand Romans 12 and 13 a little bit better. It it offers a lot of clarity as we develop a political theology faithful to Jesus. Thanks for your time. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching and listening. I've got five quick takeaways from the interview with Andrew. Number one, Jesus's lordship relativizes all other lordships in our world. Number two, Jesus and his gospel are the standard of justice and righteousness and not the standards created by pagan governments. Number three, we must understand how Romans 12 impacts and forms our understanding as we read Romans 13. Context, context, context. Number four, Romans 13 needs to be understood alongside the scriptural narrative. And Andrew was talking about the tradition of the Old Testament prophets and God's indictment of world empires as we look forward to Revelation 13. Number five, we process Jesus-centered politics as families and we bring children into this journey. This podcast called We the Peace can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and most places where podcasts land. Blessings as you seek to embody the peace of Jesus wherever you are.